So this morning we're reading the last chapter in 2 Timothy, which you can find on page 1853. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke and encourage. With great patience and careful instruction, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychius to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander, the metal worker, did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him, because he strongly opposed our message. At my first defence, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus stayed in Corinth, and I left Trimethus sick in Miletus. Do your best to get here before winter. Eubulus greets you, and so do Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers and sisters. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you all. Well, thanks for reading, Robin. There's some tricky names at the end there, so well done. Uh, great to see you here this morning. Thank you for being with us on a long weekend and a slightly grey day outside. Uh, my name's Carl. I'm the pastor here at Trinity Church Unley. I want to add my welcome to Matt's and to Captain Senior Walker D. Plank. Um, it's great to have you here with us this morning. We are, as Matt has said, looking at the last chapter of 2 Timothy today. Next week, we're going to be getting back into Matthew's Gospel and we're picking up the story in chapter 13, looking at some of the parables that Jesus spoke. But this week, we're looking at the end of 2 Timothy, and in a sense, looking at the end of Paul's life. If you've got questions that come up today, I'd love you to text them in. The number's on the screen behind me, or 
uh, in the front of your leaflet, or if you prefer, you can use your leaflet, you can write a question on the tear-off slip and pop that in the everything box out on the hall table afterwards. Now let me also just encourage you, if you can stay after our time together this morning and enjoy lunch with us, I'd love you to do that. We've got plenty of food for us to share together. Our lunches are designed so that we get to know each other better as a family of God, and I would encourage you to stay so that we can get to know you better uh, this morning. I wonder, have you heard of a lady called Elizabeth Kubler-Ross? Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote the book on death and dying. She literally wrote the book. I've got a a photo of one on the screen behind me. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote more than 25 books actually on the topic of death and dying. It was Kubler-Ross who devised those five stages of grief that you might have heard of before. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression and acceptance. This week, the ABC published an article on Elizabeth. And in that article, Elizabeth's own death was analysed. The article claimed that in 1995, following a series of strokes, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross became trapped in her own grief cycle, unable to get past the anger phase. Although she dedicated her her life's research and work to articulating the grief of others, faced with her own grief and her own death, the article suggested that she still had lessons to learn. The article quoted her son, Kenneth Ross, who says this, Mum got a lot of flack in the media in the years before her death because her lack of ease with death made her appear that she wasn't practising what she taught. And that makes Elizabeth Kubler-Ross a great contrast to the Apostle Paul. In these last words in 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul is also facing death. I wonder what you think it means to die well. It's a bit of a morbid question, isn't it, to be asking on a grey Sunday morning... But it's the question, I think, that goes begging as we read the end of 2 Timothy. No one knows for sure how long the Apostle Paul lived after writing this letter. Some commentators think it might have only been a matter of weeks before he died. And so in this letter, and especially in the last few verses of this letter, we get a great insight into the Apostle Paul. We see what he cares about. We see his true character as he faces death. And the way in which he does that, that tells us a lot about his convictions and his belief. Today, as we work our way through chapter 4, I want us to see three things. Firstly, I want us to see the courage or the confidence that Paul has as he faces his imminent death. Secondly, I want you to see what the dying man, Paul, really cares about. The gospel and the gospel doing its thing in the world. And thirdly, I want us to think about what knowing the gospel means for us as a church today. Timothy was charged to preach the gospel. What are we, you and I, what are we to do having read this passage? I hope today you'll see a pattern 
of gospel-centered proclamation that applies for us as well. If you've got your leaflet with you, you'll see those three points or something similar to those jotted down there. You might like to follow along on the inside of your leaflet if that helps you concentrate today. I want us to start, firstly, by seeing the confidence that Paul has as he faces his own death. He knew that time was limited. Come with me, I'll show you how we know that. Come with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. That's the passage that Robin read to us before. I'd love you to turn in your Bibles if you don't have them open. It's on page 1,853, and we see Paul knows of his imminent death. We read that in verses 6 and 7. Let me read those to you now, verses 6 and 7 of 2 Timothy chapter 4. It says this, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. The drink offering, I understand, was part of the Jewish sacrificial system and it was usually offered in conjunction with a burnt offering. Drink offerings weren't generally offered on their own. I want you to imagine the burnt offering on the altar with a fire burning there and the drink offering being poured onto that. I imagine that as it's done so, the liquid in the drink offering would kind of erupt in a cloud of steam. It's poured out and it's gone. Maybe Paul sees the same sort of thing in his life. He's being poured out and then extinguished. Maybe he thinks of his life as that sort of accompanying of sizzle and steam and fizz when liquid is poured onto a fire. What's clear, though, having read these verses, is that Paul knows that his time in the world is nearing an end. His departure is near. He's about to leave this world. And unlike Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, though, you see the confidence with which Paul faces his death. He says this, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I have kept the faith. As Australians reading this, I I wonder if sometimes if we read these words, we see them not just as confidence, but almost as arrogance. See, as Australians, normally when you tell someone you've made it, they think you've got tickets on yourself. Really, Paul, you've done all that? You've kept the faith? You've finished the race? Do you want a medal, Paul? It's kind of the way we think about it, isn't it? But Paul's not Australian and his culture is different. And in fact, it's not a medal that he wants, but rather the crown of righteousness. Strange term, isn't it? The crown of righteousness. Elsewhere in the New Testament, crowns are given to those who remain faithful to Jesus. The crown is a reward, but it's a reward for faithfulness, a reward for finishing the race, for not walking away from Jesus. And Paul is supremely confident that the crown is coming his way. What do you think that confidence comes from for Paul? What gives him that confidence? Because I think that's the question that we should ask when we see Paul's confidence, and especially we should ask that when we see that Paul's supporters at the end of his life are kind of deserting him, they're disappearing, they're leaving him for dead. Have a look what it says in verse 9. Paul says, Do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. 
And we see that idea again in verse 16, this idea of desertion. Paul says, at my first offense, no one came to support me, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. I think there's probably nothing more confidence sapping in this life than when your supporters start to leave you. Standing up for a cause is one thing if you've got an army of supporters who have your back. But when they've all gone home, well, that's when it's really hard to stay confident, isn't it? To stand up for the cause. Where does Paul's confidence come from? Well, I think the answer is found in verses 17 and 18. This is what Paul says. Despite the desertion of others... But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Despite... All, pretty much, of Paul's supporters leaving him to face the wrath of the Roman judicial system, Paul knows that the Lord, his Saviour, Jesus Christ, the one who, remember in chapter 1, verse 10, says, has brought life and immortality, that same Lord is standing with Paul. It's the Lord who gives Paul strength to face what lies ahead. Strength to keep proclaiming the good news of the gospel. Strength and assurance to face his death. And in many ways, I think Paul has a bit of an advantage here over what most of us have. After all, God has spoken to Paul in a way that I think he speaks to very few of us. Thank you, thankful for David Cook's insight into this passage here. David Cook points out a number of places in the book of Acts where God speaks directly to Paul in a dream or a vision, assuring him of his safety. At least three times, Paul is assured in these dreams of God's purposes for him. You might like to write down Acts 18, verses 9 and 10. 18, 9 and 10, or Acts 23, verse 11. After our service, you might like to have a look at those verses. You'll see God assuring Paul and speaking with him directly. See, Paul is a man who knows God. His confidence about what lies ahead, it's not arrogance, but a certainty that God stands alongside him. That God gives him strength. And with that confidence, Paul is able to face death supremely well. Indeed, he's able to see his life as a race run And his death as a transition to a time where he will receive a crown of righteousness. Now I suspect that reading these words will will help us to some extent face our own mortality. But I think the real benefit comes in seeing Paul as an example. An example for us to follow. For we too have the same God walking alongside us. The same God has loved us and cared for us enough to send his son to die for us. The same crown of righteousness, well, that's ready to be bestowed upon us who finish the race. 
As we live like Paul, learning to trust God wholeheartedly, I think we'll learn to face our own mortality with confidence, just like Paul. See, Paul knows where he's going when he dies. He knows he's going to be with the Lord. He knows what's in store for him when he gets there, a crown of righteousness. And he has great clarity and confidence in this. And he wants us, as his readers, to share that confidence. That's the certainty that characterizes Paul's outlook. It's the certainty that shapes also the charge that Paul gives to Timothy. As we look at this charge that Paul gives to Timothy early in the chapter, let me just draw your attention to the first verse that we read today. It says this, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom. In other words, Timothy, listen to this next bit I'm about to say. Listen and obey. Listen because God is present. See that? In the presence of God. God is present and he's watching. So, Timothy, obey. Obey because God will judge. Discharge your duty because God is coming back. God's not absent. He hasn't walked away. He's present. That's the context of the charge. Charge is a bit of an unusual thing, isn't it? A charge in this context. Paul charges Timothy. We normally use the word charge in the context of a transaction. So you might be charged $4.50 for a flat white at the local coffee shop. Or possibly you might be charged if you've committed some sort of crime. That's how we use the word often. But here in 2 Timothy, the charge is a, a formal order to act. It's the binding of a duty to be discharged through a kind of action. You know, in a similar sort of way, perhaps a tenant of a significant or historical building might be charged with the upkeep of that building and they discharge that duty through carrying out maintenance work. A charge, in this sort of charge, makes you duty-bound. And Paul makes Timothy duty-bound to the church that he has responsibility over. And he's to discharge that duty primarily by preaching the word. Because for Paul, that is the most important thing. It's important because God is present. It's important because he will judge both Timothy and those who are entrusted to Timothy's care. Remember the gospel is the message of life and immortality? It's also a message of judgment. It's a message that demands repentance and allegiance to Jesus. And because Jesus is coming back, there's an urgency in this charge as well. Timothy, Jesus is coming back. So Timothy, preach the word. Preach it when the going's good and when the going's tough. Preach it when people are listening to you and they encourage you to keep doing it. Preach it when people are sitting on the edge of their seats listening to every word that comes from your mouth. But Timothy... Keep holding out the word, even when the people in the pews start falling asleep. Preach it to a full church and preach it to a church that's almost empty, in season and out of season. Because the preaching of the word is what corrects, rebukes and encourages. And do it with great patience. I think it's worth remembering at this point that this is an occasional letter 
It's an occasional letter. In other words, it's written for a particular occasion. This letter is written by Paul to his dear spiritual son, Timothy. This charge then is applicable to Timothy in his role as the church leader. And I think by implication, all church leaders need to listen to these words as well. We're incorporated into this charge by virtue of our role. Pastors are to preach the word, to preach scripture, those God-breathed words. And they'll do that because, as you remember from last week and from chapter 3, scripture makes us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. And it's scripture that's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. It's not the pastor's own ideas, even if they're great ideas. It's scripture that does these things. For Paul, the one who started the church in Ephesus that Timothy is now preaching in, this is what it means to finish well. It means to exhort his mentee, Timothy, keep on doing what is most important. Teach the Bible so that it's known. And I reckon this seems as relevant a charge today as it was when Paul first gave it to Timothy. Paul tells Timothy to teach the word because a time is coming when sound doctrine won't be listened to anymore. Let me read from verse 3. Paul says this, For a time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. I wonder how those verses sit with you. To me, to me they strike, strike a real great chord. The imagery of itching ears wanting to hear a pleasing and pleasurable and trouble-free, sacrifice-free message seems so apt in our world today, doesn't it? I know these things about myself. I would prefer to gather around me people who say things that I like to hear, even if that comes at the expense of truth. I reckon that's almost part of the human condition, that we like to do that sort of thing. I notice this about my life. I listen to podcasts. I read articles and I watch films that in many ways enforce the things that I want to hear. But if the gospel, if that means correction and rebuke, maybe it's easier then to surround yourselves with people who who say the gospel doesn't require that. We live in a world today where choice has become part of the reality in which we live, don't we? It's almost like our world today is a choose-your-own-adventure world. If you don't like the message of this church, go and find another. After all, we're in the city of churches in Adelaide. If you don't like the school you're at, you can change. If you don't like the local coffee shop, if it drops the ball on the really good beans, you can always go and find another coffee shop. There's literally one on every corner after all. We live in a world of choice. And into that context, the temptation is to say what people want to hear. And Paul tells Timothy, keep your head in that situation. Don't be swayed by the fashions and the fads of the day. Stick with the truth of the word. Even if it means hardship and persecution. That's Paul's charge to Timothy. It's part of how Paul finishes well. I wonder what that means for us today at Trinity Church Unley. 
What does it mean for us in our current context in this world? Well, I can think of two things. The first is as a church, we need to be a church that preaches and teaches the Word. We need to be shaped by the Bible. We need to allow the Bible to correct and rebuke and lead us at times to a place of repentance. Our preachers, it's not only me, but our other preachers who are here, they need to ensure that through God's strength and His grace, our preaching is anchored in the Word of God and not simply delivered just to scratch itchy ears. What about the rest of us? For those of us who who don't have the responsibility week in, week out of preaching. How does this passage speak to you, I wonder? Well, I think in this passage there's a model here that we can follow. We might not all be preachers, but I think each of us have a responsibility to hold out the hope of the gospel and to hold out that hope without changing it or altering it or modifying it. When you speak of Jesus, do you do so with words of truth? not words that just simply scratch itchy ears. I reckon we see this idea, this sort of uh, concept, even more clearly in Peter's first letter. I'd love you to come with me there now. It's on page 1,890 of your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 3. It's a great encouragement, this passage, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, for us to keep sharing the hope that we have. It's on page 1,890, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. This is what Peter says. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats, do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So here Peter gives each one of us a great encouragement as we speak to those who don't yet know Jesus. Always be prepared to give an answer to, to anyone who asks for the reason of the hope that you have. And do it with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. What does 2 Timothy add to this? Well, 2 Timothy reminds us that we need to do this, ensuring that the words of hope are truthful, that they expound the gospel. Gentleness and respect doesn't mean scratching itchy ears. It does mean, though, using sensitivity and wisdom and kindness as we help others to get to know Jesus. Paul's second letter to Timothy is, I think, a great letter for us as a church to chew over today. It's a letter that reminds us with with great clarity about what is important in this world, the gospel. It's a letter that encourages us to pass on that gospel to others, even if that's expensive for us to do. Pass it on to those in your care. Pass it on to those you spend time with. It's a letter that reminds us that throughout the history of the church, there have always been people who have a message that is contrary to the gospel. 
Remember in Timothy's day, we read of Hermineus and Philetus who taught that the resurrection had already happened. In our world today and in our times, there are many both within the church and outside of the church who teach a message that is contrary to the gospel. Here in this letter is a great encouragement for us to hold on to the truth of the gospel. Now, 2 Timothy is also a letter about finishing well, isn't it? It's a letter that holds out for us this great example of Paul, a man who can say with absolute confidence, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Paul knows what it means to finish well. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was an expert on dying until it came time for her own death. Paul, on the other hand, he seems to be even more confident as he gets closer to his own death. He's almost like he's eager because he has the eye on the reward. He wants that crown of righteousness. I hope you've seen and been encouraged by the example of Paul as we've read this letter together over the last few weeks. It's my suspicion that being a follower of Jesus is not going to get any easier as the years go by. Many may desert the faith because of that. This is the reality that I want you to remember though. God is present. Jesus will judge the living and the dead. He will return And so we must teach what God wants to be known. We must teach the scriptures, even if that means rebuke and correction and repentance. We do so, though, remembering that God is on our side. We do so in the grace that he provides. We do so with the strength that he offers. We do so knowing that it means receiving a crown of righteousness when we too die. I'm going to pray for us that we would hold on in a similar sort of way that Paul does. Father God, we thank you for the encouragement of Paul, our apostle, the apostle to the Gentiles. We thank you for his knowledge of you. Thank you for the encouragement of his confidence of what happens when he dies. Father, we pray that as a church you would help us to hold on to the truth of the gospel, that our message wouldn't change, simply to scratch itchy ears. And we pray that you would help each one of us, whether we're suffering uh, troubles at the moment or not, to remember that you have in store for those who finish the race a crown of righteousness. Amen.